Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Off The Beaten Track podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another day, therefore it's another episode. And today it's part of uh, a double bill. Um, Soda Jerker is a podcast that um, has been very influential on this podcast. Um, I think it's a, an absolute, uh, I think it's one of the greatest music podcasts out there. Um, and I'm always obsessed with the, the kind of structures of songwriting and, and hearing songwriters talk to songwriters about that um is is very much a pleasurable listen so um so i get to sit down with simon and, and brian and today's uh, this episode is simon um obviously one of the two presenters of soda jerker and and we have a lovely chat and you're about to hear that um before we get on with it just a few thank yous so um i'd like to thank scroobius pip and everybody over at the distraction pieces network which is the network that this podcast is on, um, as well as many other great podcasts, um, podcasts such as uh, Brett Goldstein's Films to be Buried With, um, and obviously Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces, and, and, and many others. I, I, I would definitely suggest you go and um, explore the Distraction Pieces network. Um, and I'd like to thank 76 for producing this podcast, who uh, has his work cut out in lockdown because we're we're recording to the best of our abilities over Zoom and Skype and such. And so he does the best he can to try and ensure that you get a nice warm sounding studio type recording. And uh, and so thanks to, to him for that. If this also is your first time listening to uh, Off The Beat and Track podcast, then... Once you've listened to um, my, my chat today with Simon, then go and explore the back catalogue. There's there's over 250 episodes available for free now, um, and you can hear me talking to artists as diverse as Maxine Peake, to Fatboy Slim, to Foo Fighters, to Tommy Lee of Motley Crue, to James Acaster, Ed Gamble, Butch Fig. Um, so, yeah, go and go and get stuck in to the, uh, the archives when you finish listening to this episode. Um, and if you'd like to support the podcast, um, there's some really simple ways to do that. You can just um, give us a like, love, share and a retweet on the socials. We're on all the usual platforms. Um, and if you'd like to um, support it more uh, and get some extra content as well, then I have a Patreon. Um, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com forward slash off the beaten track. Uh, and I put up radio shows over there. I put up video episodes uh, and all sorts of bespoke bits and pieces. Uh, and you can support that over there from as little as a dollar a month. And it just kind of goes in the pot to uh, to help support the podcast. Anyway, you can find out about everything I've just been wittering on about at www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com. Right, I know why you're here. Please enjoy Off the Beaten Track with Simon of Soda Jerker. It's Off the Beaten Track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. It me, stew with him. Okay, we are recording. Joining me today via the means of Zoom. Fellow music podcaster, uh, one half of uh, the Soda Jerker team, Simon Barber. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. I've uh, I generally have, have been enjoying the uh, new way of recording podcasts uh, over over lockdown because it does give me a little opportunity to be nosy and uh, and look into people's front rooms and offices and stuff like that. And I think you may have just took the uh, took the cup today because it's pretty impressive. I mean, is this the home studio? 
Yeah, it is, yeah. It was kind of my lockdown project, actually. I um, converted my garage, which I knew I needed to do when I moved into this house because um, I've got so much gear, as you can see. You know, I've, I've accumulated a guitar probably every couple of years since I was about 14 years old, so there's loads of them now, um, embarrassingly so. And uh, so, yeah, I thought, well, let's get everything plugged in and set up, and I've patched everything in, and you can actually really just do anything at a moment's notice, you know, so it's it's really nice to work in here. And, of course, I do the podcast in here as well. I edit in here and all kinds, so. And so how have you found um, podcasting over the last – I mean, I wanna, let's just ask you as well. Like, how have you found um, the last year as, as, as Simon, human being, and how have you found <laughs> it as, as, as podcaster and, and, and songwriter? Um, you know, it wasn't too much of an upheaval for me because I've always been someone who's liked to work from home anyway. And um, the work that I do as a researcher and as an academic, I, I do a lot of that at home. And so when that happened, I kind of just went straight to my man cave in the way that I always have and, and just carried on, really. Um, so it hasn't been much of an upheaval for me. But doing the podcast has been interesting remotely. You know, we, we did start off doing them remotely in the beginning. So we did a lot of Skype chats early on. Um, and that was always okay, but of course you get a better rapport with people when you sit down with them in person, and it's just much easier to to give those kind of visual cues when you want to interrupt or something like that. And and that's been a little bit hard remotely, but the this video chat software has got so good now in terms of Zoom and everything that uh, we found it quite enjoyable. You know, we can get great sound on on everyone's different ends, and it just works fine you know it's been really good and to be honest there's something to be said for doing it remotely because when you get someone in their own surroundings at home they're they're probably more likely to be relaxed and oftentimes i find um they'll just give you that little bit more time whereas in person when we sit down with someone in london for example if they've got kind of a day of press planned yeah then it's probably more of a junket vibe and you will only get that 30 minutes whereas most of these things we've done remotely have been at least an hour which is really nice you know I, I totally agree. I, I found it really weird at first because I'd never recorded remotely. And so the first one that I'd done in, in, in lockdown, I think I'd done sort of three or four episodes um, in my back pocket as we sort of, as, as the world stopped turning. And I was like, right, well, I've got a few weeks worth here and then I'm going to, what am I going to do? And, and obviously at the time I thought, well, this pandemic thing you know that'd be done and dusty by the end of the month anyway and <laughs> and obviously just kind of sort of was quite dismissive of it and then realized quite quickly that I was going to have to if I was going to continue to do the podcast during this I'd, I'd have to rethink it and and yeah and and do what we're doing now which is kind of buy a zoom account uh, which is something I wish I would have bought shares in about two years ago <laughs> um but and, and and then it what as you say is them kind of moments you get in a room where you feel that kind of vibe and you can feel that moment when you can interject and 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 it is I think the first couple I've done on zoom was probably just because I, I was nervous as well and I wasn't in my sort of comfortable surroundings to do a podcast I was completely in, out of my comfort zone but then I felt like I'm gonna find it really strange to go back and and I think to to then go and sit in a room with someone, and I think because of the simplicity as well, I don't know how you feel about this, Simon, but just as you said, like going into London, finding a studio, sitting in that studio, there's there's a whole day gone there yeah. for like for one hour long episode. Whereas now <laughs> I can pop to the end of my garden and I can record four in a day, and yeah. and it's so I do think it's. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's a bit of a double-edged sword as to as to as we find ourselves, you know, coming out of this. Like, where I'm going to go with it? Have you, are you fully sort of intending on going back to the, you know, the, the sitting in a room scenario? Or are you going to kind of find a hybrid? Or, I mean, it it is working so well that it would have to be probably something quite significant to get us down there on the train again. Sure. To be quite honest, because as you say, it's it works so well. Um, so. I suppose once we're getting invited back down to these things, we will end up doing it. But it, as you say, it's it's a lot of effort, isn't it? When you, especially with Brian being in Liverpool and me being in the Midlands, mm. 
you know, it's it's train fares, it's travel, it's the tube, it's, you know, like you say, a whole kind of day, basically. Mm. Um, and then you're going to need to eat while you're down there, and then you're going to have to wait for the train to get back. And it's, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night when you get home, and all you've done is record 45 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, you know, thinking about it now, whether it's worth the expense and the effort is, is something to be considered, I think. Absolutely. Right, well, let's talk records. <laughs> and uh, 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 for track one, Simon, I'm going to ask you uh, to tell me the song that you regard as having the greatest ever intro, please. Okay, well, the one I chose for this was Alone Again Naturally by Gilbert O'Sullivan. Okay. Though I didn't really choose it because its intro is is that kind of distinctive. It's more the first couple of verses I consider as being introductory to the song, which I think are very special. Okay, Um and so, was there anything else in the kind of the the the, the, the shortlist to to make this? And I, and I also want to ask you about intros in general as a, as a songwriter as well. But um, was there any sort of almost almost made it, or was it just the go to Gilbert O'Sullivan right from the off? Well, I suppose I did think of a few kind of songs with you know classic intros. You, you cycle through the kind of uh, Stairway to Heavens, or the um, in my case probably something by Howard Jones. But um, then I just sort of hit upon this one and I thought, well, if we expand the, the definition of intro slightly, yeah. there's something so poetic and kind of special about those first couple of verses of that song. I mean, the actual keyboard intro to the song is quite kind of unfussy and simple, yeah. but um, when it kicks in, it, it's perfection to my mind. So I thought, oh, I'll just go with Gilbert. <laughs> okay, well, of all the ridiculously great guests you've had on 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 soda jerker um i mean it's an absolute you know who's who of 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 incredible songwriters and the one that i am so jealous of uh is who you just mentioned and that's hojo and uh, uh right <laughs> and uh because you're talking to a, a ridiculously big howard jones fan right now ah right good and uh and so Let's talk Howard Jones intros. Which ones which ones would have been in there? Oh, let me pull up my Hojo playlist and just see which ones I would have I would have gone for. I'm gonna throw a curveball in there, right? I'm not gonna go for the, the, the big sort of synth pop singles. I'm gonna go for uh, an album track from a later one called Will You Still Be There? Um ah. uh, familiar with that one? I don't think so. Oh what it's... album was that on? Uh was it one but what was the album called? Uh I think it was the album with Everlasting Love on it. Right, okay. Cross that line. That Cross be... that line, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, I don't know. Always Asking Questions has got a good intro. Yep. Um, God, there's so many, isn't there? <laughs> Pearl in the Shell, new song. They're all great. Yeah. Howard's, Howard's a monster when it comes to a good old-fashioned synth intro. Yeah. Yeah. And so in regards to songwriting and intros, like over the sort of period of time that you've you've been involved in songwriting and music have you ever kind of been affected by the changes in how people listen to music insofar as now we're in a world where younger people's thumbs are swiping very very quickly and there's lots of songs now that just start with a chorus vocals got to be in by x amount of time are these things that that you take on board or are you still you know, comfortable just going, I'm going to write a song, it's going to come as it comes, or are you aware of the kind of, what I guess are the recipes of modern pop and, and, and what, you know, what the formula is? I think anyone who listens to music like we do in a kind of analytical way, um, kind of forensic way, is aware of that stuff happening. Um, personally, as a musician, I don't think I'd be that drawn to, to sort of try and satisfy those kind of briefs, to be honest. But um, I do hear about a lot of that happening in the sort of commercial pop songwriting world when people get together for co-writes. Sure. Um, they're, they're very much thinking about Spotify skip rates these days. And, you know, we've literally got to have this 
have this listener on the hook within the first 30 seconds or 30% of all people are going to tune out, you know? Yeah. So um, they are sort of taking hooks, often sort of wordless hooks, you know, the the sort of ooh-na-na-yeah type hooks, and they're putting those in the first sort of eight seconds, followed by hook number two, and then straight into the chorus, so there's no chance of anybody getting bored, you know? Yeah. And, and that does affect um, song structure, I suppose. Um, but, you know... There's a precedent for everything, isn't there? And if you go back to, you know, Chic, I mean, Nile Rodgers was starting all those songs with the chorus back in the 70s, wasn't he? So I don't think it's going to sort of totally transform songwriting, but there's a lot of people talking about that as a phenomenon these days and how they feel kind of um, oppressed by the the technology in a sense. Um, I've got a student who's doing a PhD on that very subject, actually, the way in which... uh, those technologies are kind of impacting professional songwriters, which I think is quite interesting. Absolutely. But... Absolutely. Well, I'm going to take you back, Simon, for track two, and I'm going to ask you for the first song that you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you, please. Well, I wish I could say it was uh, Bob Dylan or Tom Waits or something. <laughs> but um, if I'm honest, uh, when I was about seven, my uncle who just recently passed away, unfortunately, um, made me a cassette tape of, just unprompted, made me this cassette of the top 10 songs in the charts and sent it to me. And it was sort of around Christmas time, sort of mid-December of 1985, this was. And uh, the the chart was filled with um, Merry Christmas, Everyone, Shaking Stevens was in there, and uh, See the Day. DC Lee. Don't know if you remember that one. Of course. <laughs> DC Lee was obviously Mary Paul Weller. Right, like, of course. Yeah. She was in the Style Council. Yeah. Yeah, so there was um there was that number one was Saving All My Love for You, Whitney Houston. Lovely. And you know, I, I mean I don't hear that song these days and have any kind of like strong emotional connection to it or anything like that. But I just remember since you asked about sort of the first, I just remember that opening line, you know. Because she sings, a few stolen moments is all that we share. You've got your family and they need you there. And I just remember thinking, oh, (laughs) I don't think I'd thought much before that as to whether a song could kind of encapsulate the complexities of adult relationships. But just that idea of, you know, there being a love affair and them sort of making a more responsible decision and saying, you've got a family, you know, they need you. We should probably not pursue this. Yeah. And that just sort of leapt out to me. And, of course, Whitney, the way she sang, was so kind of uh, emotional and so powerful anyway that you can get caught up in it. But, I mean, these days I'd probably just marvel at how much Yamaha DX7 is on that record, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah, back then I sort of thought, oh, wow, you know, that's interesting. I didn't really realise songs could do that, you know. And was that the was that the debut single, or was or was How Will I Know out before that? I'm not sure, but that was obviously like that was pretty much the song I think that really introduced the world to Whitney Houston. I've, was, I don't even know if that was a UK number one, but it was definitely must have been a top five. I think it was number one on that chart on that tape that I had. Yeah, yeah. Right. 85 was a good year. There were some good tunes out that year. I think yeah. like, one of the first compilations I ever had was like Hits 1985, and I think. That was the year, I think, of... Uh, there was lots of kind of sort of ballady stuff. I mean, you mentioned the DC lead track, but there, I think I think 85 was like, I want to know what love is by Foreigner. Uh, <laughs> and I'm just trying to think of some of the other sort of stuff that was that was coming out around then. Um, but, yeah, it's... Uh, and uh, do you know what? Just going back to DC Lee, I watched... Um, have you watched the recent Style Council documentary... That, no, um, not yet. It's a fantastic watch. It, re- it really is. And I never realised that DC Lee was actually with Shirley in Wham! before Pepsi. Is that right? Yeah. So if you see yeah. like Wham! rap and stuff like that on Top of the Pops, it's DC Lee. Oh, wow. There you go. A awesome. barrage of DC Lee facts for you there, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> Went a lot deeper than I was expecting, but yeah, that's good. Now, 85 was a great year. I mean, for me, it was the year of Back to the Future as well. Of course. You know? So it was kind of a pivotal moment, I suppose, for me in a lot of yeah. ways, in pop culture terms. Definitely, definitely. Um, and so in regards to the, the emotion that you drew from hearing that Whitney Houston song at that age, if you had to sort of pinpoint that emotion, what would it have been? 
probably just an awareness of what songs could do, really. Mm. Just, um, you know, coming to appreciate that there was a certain amount of depth that could be held within a couple of lines. Yeah. I mean, that, that song was co-written by Jerry Goffin. Um, and obviously, you know, he had huge success in the 50s and 60s with Carol King um, and their their songwriting partnership. But I guess as he got older, he did like quite a bit of co-writing professionally and had his name on some hits like that one. And um, you can really tell his touch in there, I think, that he was able to distill that down to just that opening couplet, you know. Definitely. It's, it's interesting when I ask guests uh, to pinpoint the emotion and, and, and lots and lots of sort of people have kind of edged towards what you said there, which is almost like a a kind of awakening to the power of music and like and and it being oh right, okay, so it's not just something that is just there. There's depth to this and there you know, and it's that kind of awakening of that. I think that's a a, a a really sort of beautiful thing when you first get that. But I'm going to stay in the, the formative years, Simon, for uh, <laughs> for track three, and I'm going to take you back uh, to school, and I'd like uh, you to tell me a song, please, for track three to remind you of your time at school. Well, there's quite a few different eras of school that one can consider. Well, you can I throw mean... a few in, mate. <laughs> well, you know, the sort of school disco era, that would have been Stock Aiken and Waterman probably all okay. the way, you know. Um, those events were always packed with uh, Jason Donovan and Rick Astley well, and all of that stuff. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about Cracking the Waterman because um, at the time, sort of dismissed by the by the heads as being like just disposable pop um, and this big factory of 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 just you know cheesy pop, if you want to call it that. At the time, uh, in retrospect, I look back at it and. And I was literally listening to some some early stuff from Kylie um, last night. And it was pretty much the Motown of its time, I think. I, I think the pop that come out, that, and I would love, I would love to hear like a kind of, almost like Mark Ronson take on the best of Stock Aiken and Waterman and put <laughs> that kind of sort of 60s, like, like he did with, with, with you know, wine ass and stuff. Do that with Stock Aiken and Waterman songs because I think when you strip them down, they're brilliant pop records. I don't know what your thoughts are on this. Oh, no, absolutely. Um, you know, as you say, it was a sort of a 24-7 machine, wasn't it? That operation that they had going. And uh, a lot of good stuff comes out of that kind of practice, doesn't it? You know, Motown was the same. And I think um, you can have a routine and a formula. It doesn't necessarily mean that all the stuff you produce is going to be routine or formulaic mm. so um they did a lot of good stuff you know tracks like roadblock and mm. things like that were, were really quite distinctive um and as you say you know the fact that they were getting together in the morning deciding what they were going to do and then putting together a track and having the artist sing on in the afternoon mix it at tea time and put it out the next day i mean it was like it was that kind of process wasn't it and yeah. so their their hit rate was extraordinary considering they were working in that kind of way mm. Uh, I think Mike Stock told us a story when he was on our podcast about um, that Kylie session for I Should Be So Lucky, it must have been. And um, she turned up in the foyer saying that I've got an appointment. And they'd forgotten she was coming because at the time she was just an Australian, you know, neighbours basically, yeah. And so um, they said, oh, damn, let's get something going. Put her in that room. Let's get something going. And so they sat down and wrote that one in like five minutes. And then wow. she she sang on the track, and that was it. Um, but yeah, I mean they they had a lot of ability. I think um, you know I, I I wouldn't be quick to dismiss catalogues of songs that were created in that way. Yeah, I think. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so other moments uh, from school that you're going to draw from for uh, well, your song I suppose choices. I suppose the other. Um, the other major kind of school disco song is I Want to Dance with Somebody, which is <laughs> another Whitney one. I guess Whitney was omnipresent in that period, wasn't she? But um, that's a great one for a, a kind of a disco environment, you know. Um, and, and a lot of those tracks that she did came from um, working with Nora the Michael Walden, who we also got to speak to. And I think we touched on those tracks, How Will I Know and I Want to Dance with Somebody. Wow, uh, I did not know you'd had him on. Yeah, yeah, he's a whirlwind. You want to listen to that episode? He's wow. got a lot of energy. Because, yeah. I mean, what was, I listened to something last night, and my mate was like, that's Narada. And I was like, is it? 
And then, because he's got a sound that you just go, yeah, of course it is. And and obviously a standalone artist with like Divine Emotions as well, which was a, a, oh, yeah. a huge tune. Like I, sh- I should have loved you as a classic. Mm, you know, yeah, it's great. Um, I mean, just touching on school, like where where was school and how was it? Um, I went to school in uh, Liverpool, uh, a school called St Francis Xavier's College. It was a Catholic school, and it was like any school in Liverpool. You know, you you take a few knocks here and there and <laughs> I was into music so I was part of a certain kind of uh, group I suppose and um, you know you, I grew my hair long in sixth form and uh, was really into bands and that sort of thing I was starting to be in my own bands and yeah you get a lot of stick for that in Liverpool you know um, but uh, once you've been called hippie and wiggy and braveheart a few times you're okay <laughs> <laughs> so was was, was 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 sort of music something from a very young age that this is where my career is going to go. This is what I want to do. Was there anything else that was in the in the running for like no? You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna do my music, but I'm also going to study to be a plumber or something like that. Was music always the goal? Yeah, music was pretty much always the thing. And um, I started playing the guitar when I was about fourteen. I started writing songs pretty much straight away. And then I was in class with Brian, you know, my my co-writer and the guy I do the podcast with. We were, you know, pals from that age as well. So he was always in every band I was ever in. And uh, from there, we just kept sort of writing songs and stuff. And we went to Lipper and studied music and did a degree in music there. And uh, after that, I went on to the University of Liverpool. I wrote my PhD about popular music. Um, So... I, I was always interested in sort of studying music, researching music, playing music. There was nothing really else that ever appealed to me as much as as that, you know. Um, and I guess if you were to look back at me in sixth form, you would be quite. It would be quite obvious that I was a sort of a music head. I would have been sort of paroling, <laughs> sort of um, you know, stalking around the playground with an A3 art folder with a Pearl Jam. Uh, <laughs> poster in the side of it with some obscure single that they put out or something you know um having debates with my friends about what was and wasn't grunge probably (laughs) when you said that you was in grew your hair and and, uh was 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 you know getting into bands and stuff i was then going to say what kind of era was that and what was you know what were the bands that were kind of really shaping you in them them sort of formative times i'll take it pearl jam and was it that moment of, of what was coming over from seattle and such I guess so, yeah, because I, I did my GCSEs in 95. So okay. it was that sort of mid-90s era where those bands really took off, you know. Um, I remember there being quite a lot of anticipation for Pearl Jam's second album, Versus, because uh, 10 had been such a success, you know. Uh, and I was quite a surprise when that one arrived, I thought, because the first album has a certain kind of mainstream quality to it, you know, Um Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament had come out of Mother Love Bone, and that was kind of a very kind of like almost eighties rock band in a way. Hundred percent. And do you know what? The amount of people I'm, I love Pearl Jam, absolutely love that band, and the amount of people that would talk about Mother Love Bone and like and kind of like yeah, I was into them when they were in Mother Love Bone. I was just always oh, thinking, no, you wasn't, and uh, <laughs> and I just could never see what the fuss was with Mother Love Bone. It was quite cock-rocky and, you know, and it, it weren't... It really was. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and obviously there was, obviously, Temple of Dog as well. There was all of these kind of little offshoots. I mean, Hunger yeah. Strikes a tune. I, 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 I will not diss that. That is, a, that is an absolute banger. But I think Versus is probably their best album. I think so too. And, and someone pointed out recently that um, the cover for 10 is actually, when you see them huddled together, if you look closely, it's like a high five <laughs> that they're all doing. And that kind of speaks to that kind of like um, American kind of like 80s rock era, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I think Versus was quite a departure. It yeah. was much more, I think, I would assume Eddie Vedder's influence in terms of moving them away from long guitar solos and that kind of Massively. thing. Into a much more kind of alternative, slightly dissonant kind of rock yeah. sound, you know. Yeah, dissonant being a, a track on there as well. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, um, some great stuff on that album, I think. Even to this day, I really enjoy that one. And, and, and I think, you know, I mentioned the Style Council documentary, but 
it, you know, when it comes to music documentaries, that Pearl Jam 20, which I don't know if you've seen. Yeah, but, I've seen uh, it, yeah. I'm, I mean, I think that is an absolute masterclass of how a band played the game right. Mm. You know, just trod their own path. You know, sometimes it went wrong, you know, when they tried to take on Ticketmaster and stuff. Just fascinating, though. And, and when you look at, um, like, Vitalogy as well, it's like a no-code, they're brave albums from bands mm-hmm. from a band that was arguably one of the biggest bands in the on the planet at that time to then go we're going to do something which is not going to be full of rock singles and we're not going to make videos anymore that's just, mm-hmm. just yeah I, I, I think they're a, a fascinating band Pearl Jam so what was the other stuff in and around that kind of uh, era that was that was doing it for you Simon um I probably wasn't listening as widely to the sort of stuff I do these days. You know, I mean, my tastes these days go from everything to like sort of obscure jazz to 80s synth pop to rock to mainstream pop to all kinds of stuff I listen to. And of course, doing the podcast is like a constant process of learning and researching people's back catalogue. So I'm constantly exposed to to new material, which is great. Um, But I guess back then I was probably just listening to, um, you know, Anything that was coming out of Seattle, you know, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, that sort of stuff, to be honest. Listen up. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I've only got another new sponsor. Egg Fried. It's this super cool clothing label. And if you're into sort of skating and street art and gigging and, and kind of like really cool art and throwing a little bit of Asian culture and, and the designer's kind of weird sense of humor in the mix, then you're pretty much there with the wonderful world that is eggfried.com. Now, they do these amazing punchy kind of graphic tees, hoodies and sweatshirts, beautiful art prints, as well as this, they have a denim range, all handmade in-house, all supporting the slow fashion movement. Not only that, they've given you a discount code, 10% off when you head over to eggfried.com. Just use the code EGGSALAD, E-W-G-S-A-L-A-D, save 10%. Go and get lost in the world of egg fried. Also, they've got a new kids range, and it's called Small Fried, and it's super cool, super cute. Um, and again, it's all over there in this wonderful world. Go and get involved at eggfried.com. Obviously, there was a hell of a lot going on in the UK in 95 as well. Was that finding its way into your, into your ears? Obviously, like, you know, Oasis were, were, were making a big racket, as were obviously Suede and Blur, and there was some, you know, pulp. There was some huge stuff happening, you know, this side of the water as well. 
Yeah, um, I suppose um, that that was sort of uh, all encompassing at school because everyone else was was into that. But I guess I kind of tried to resist the sort of Britpop era a little bit, and I never got fully immersed in that. Really, mm. yeah. Well, last one in the formative years. First record you bought from a record store, please, Simon. I have to th- say that I think this was popped in, sold out by Wet Wet Wet. <laughs> and I know that for some people that's going to sound like a tragic choice, but um, Wet Wet West is one of those bands, isn't it, that people love to hate for some reason. I was never really that sort of judgmental about music in that way. I never sort of thought, oh, well, you know, that that's not cool, I can't like that. I mean, for me, that record, probably after hearing Wishing I Was Lucky right. and then want, wanting that record, um, I discovered that this is like a, a bunch of lads from, like a Glasgow working-class council estate making the most incredible kind of soul-influenced pop. Massively. If you go back to that first album, it's absolutely packed with tunes and hooks, you know. You mentioned Wishing I Was Lucky, right? And I, that's probably my favourite Wet 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 song. I, I, I think mm-hmm. it's a, a, a real, real great song. Obviously, Marty Pello was the perfect front man, you know, ridiculously like good-looking guy, amazing voice, Cheeky glint in the eye. There, there's, there's your pop star right there. <laughs> Are you familiar with Treat Her Like a Lady by The Temptations? Not as well as I should be, no. Educate me. <laughs> I heard it last night, right? It was kind of um, probably early 80s Temptations. You know, it was kind of like a way, almost like a sort of Jam and Lewis sort of production sort of on it, like very kind of uh, of its time. And I listened to it last night. And I just thought to myself, oh, my God, this is Wishing I Was Lucky by Wet, Wet, Wet. <laughs> so check it out when we finish today. Go and have a listen because I, I love the way that Wishing I Was Lucky flows, you know, vocally. And it's a com- it is a complete rip-off of Treat Her Like a Lady by The Temptations. So, wow. uh, yeah, give it a, give it gonna, a whirl. I will check that out. Yeah, no, it's... It, He's very interesting as a singer, I think. And on that album, he does all kinds of weird stuff vocally, actually. Mm. Little spoken intros and strange noises in the middle of songs, things you wouldn't expect on a kind of, you know, polished pop album. Uh, But, yeah, Wishing I Was Lucky always really stuck out to me. I mean, it's got that nifty bass line, hasn't it? Graham Clark is a fantastic bass player, and Graham Duffin, I think, is a superb guitar player too. And the interplay between them two on that whole record actually is really great. Mm. And then and then you've got that sort of undercurrent of kind of social frustration in the lyric as well, you know. My friend wrote to me and told me there might be a job in the city and he's sort of, you know, really sort of living that sort of do we move to London? Do we try and seek employment down in the capital? Do we you know, you can get a sense of that and it's sort of, you know, nineteen eighty seven popped in sold out, isn't it? I think yeah. so. It's, it's you know, Thatcherite Britain, I suppose. <laughs> and it is weird. I've, I've read interviews with Marty Pello, and, you know, he constantly cites, like, Joy Division as, as like, a huge influence. And it's like, I can't hear that. <laughs> I, <laughs> no. I can't hear that. And, uh, and yeah, just, uh, I mean, the Wet, Wet, Wet story is quite a, a crazy one. I mean, when that headline hit the papers that Marty Pello was a heroin addict, it was like... Oh my god! Of like of all the pop stars and rock stars, I'd never have just thought Marty Pello would be the person that would be on the front page of a newspaper. Like, quite crazy. And who's is it? The guy I believe the front person for Wet 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 is now was he in Liberty X? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then the Voice. I think he won the Voice. Uh, right. And if I'm right, he fronts Wet 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 now. I don't know if. Uh, yeah, they they like to tour, don't they? The the guys in the band really like to perform, and uh, I take it Marty's doing his own thing, and so they they've decided to carry on without mm. him, I guess. There was some um, quite a sort of boom around '87 of sort of Scottish soul bands as well, wasn't there? I think that was probably the first time you saw Texas, Deacon Blue, and right. and another thing, a lot of them didn't sing with Scottish accents, which I always found really strange. Obviously, the same year the Proclaimers arrive and <laughs> couldn't get any more Scottish. <laughs> oh. Okay, so for track five, um, I'm going to take your clubbing, Simon, and ask you for the song that soundtracked your year's clubbing, please. 
Well, I mean, I was never at home in any nightclub, to be honest. That was never my scene. Um, I was always just more interested in sort of playing the guitar. And if I did go to clubs, they would probably have been um, more more like music clubs, you know, like the Cavern or places like yeah. that. Um, this question so, does lend itself to that, Simon. People seem to always take this question as like some kind of chrome-laden club, like with people with their shirts <laughs> off and glow sticks. It, it can be your dirty, sweaty indie club down the road or your rock club or, or yeah, or, or, you know, like you say, the cavern and things like that. So, yeah, fill your boots. Well, I did go to Cream back in the day, but, yeah, that was never my scene. Um, so I suppose... Um, ending up sort of in pubs on the high street with all your school friends when you're sort of 15, 16 or whatever. Um, Oasis was the thing that they were singing. And, um, you know, Don't Look Back in Anger absolutely filled the town hall pub on Wavertree High Street in Liverpool every Saturday night. And it was either that or Wonderwall. Um, so I think if I had to pick a song that soundtracked it, it was probably Don't Look Back in Anger, a bunch of spotty GCSE students singing it to the rafters, you know. It's a glorious record, isn't it? It really is, yeah. And it's it's cropped up time and again throughout my life, you know, um, from those days especially. But then later on, uh, we interviewed Noel and he talked us through the story behind how he wrote that one. And he wrote it quite quickly in a hotel room, as I remember. And uh, I did it, I think there was a school production that I was part of and we, we played it in the school band as well. And so it's, it's, yeah, throughout my life, it's kind of popped up here and there. And uh it does have a certain resonance for me. I mean, you know, it's hard to argue with a song like that, isn't it? It's, it is a, a great piece of music. Absolutely. And you touched on there, like, performing at school, and and then obviously, you know, you, 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 you've you been in bands and, and you, you, know, you know, talk to some of the most famous musicians on the planet. Would you say you as a confident kid and... Would you say, you know, that that's carried you through to now? That's a really good question, actually. Um, I think I was quite confident. Um, not in... I'm, I'm, I guess I'm kind of complicated in the sense that I would be the last person in a room to put my hand up and have, a, you know, draw attention to myself and to say, hey, everyone listen to my opinion on this. And that's just not my style at all. But I think back then I was probably quite convinced that I'd developed a certain amount of skills as a musician and I could do this and I was going to do it. And then I had a band and then I led that band and wrote the songs for the band. And, you know, I have always been the person who sort of pushed the things that I was doing. Um, so I guess if you were to ask all the people who were around me at that time, I was probably insufferably conf confident, you know, and driven. Um, I think so. Yeah. Cause I did do a lot of stuff and, and learn a lot of stuff, you know, in a short space of time. Um, but I think I've mellowed in terms of that and my ambition has changed and become just probably more mature and more funneled into long-term things that I'm trying to achieve as opposed to, you know, just trying to have a, this big success, you know, sure. which is uh, the folly of youth, I suppose. Absolutely. For track six, I'm going to take you home and ask for a favourite <laughs> song from an artist from your home county, please. Well, I thought it would be too easy to... Um, pick out something from the Beatles or McCartney's solo career or something like that. So uh, I thought I'd go with another Liverpool invention, Deaf School. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with Deaf School. I'm not. This was a sort of art band from um, the 1970s started by Clive Langer, the producer. Produced and Madness, right? Yeah, he produced yeah. Madness and Dexies and all kinds of people mm. with uh, Alan Winstanley. Um, but, yeah, he, he founded this band with Steve Allen, um, who was an artist and, and was in a band with Ian Brody called Original Mirrors. And then he went on to be a sort of quite successful A&R man with various labels. But um, they had this great band. Betty Bright was the singer in the band and she married Suggs. Yeah. Um, and and uh, Steve Allen went under the pseudonym Enrico Cadillac Jr. They all had these really, really very creative names. Um, Clive Langer was Cliffhanger, I think. And uh, just a really interesting band. You know, one of those art school bands from Liverpool with like 14 members. And um, Paul Denoyer wrote a book on them, actually. He's um, very tuned into the influence of Deaf School in the Liverpool music scene because uh, they played Eric's yeah. and uh, they had quite a big impact on, on acts that came after them, I think, in that era. So there was a song called uh, What a Way to End It All 
which they did, which is just a great introduction to their kind of slightly eccentric approach to songwriting, I think. So that's the one that I'd select. Oh, well, I look forward to uh, to listening to that because that's... Uh... I mean, there's there's a wealth of interesting people in that band, and that's totally passed me by. So, uh, so thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Um, and now you get to play DJ um, and influence uh, for track seven, uh, Simon. I'm going to ask you for a song that many people may not know that you would like them to hear, please. Well, there's um, a great singer songwriter producer called Mike Viola, and um, he's been on the Soda Jerker podcast fairly early on. Um, and he's going to make a return appearance soon because he just released an album called God Muffin. And uh, there's a terrific track on that called Creeper, which I think is the second track on the album. Um, and it was sort of um, connected in a loose way to the recent passing of Adam Schlesinger from Fountains of Wayne. He, he died from uh, COVID not that long back and was uh, a really great friend of Mike's and they came up together and they were involved in the song for the film, that thing you do, the Tom Hanks directed. That, that was, that was the track that got them signed, wasn't it? If I was, am I right in saying that? Um, it was, it was something that Adam wote and Mike went on and produced and sang. So he's the voice of it in the movie. Mm. Um, and, and that got them. Well. It, oh, it's a great, it's just the most perfect kind of homage to that kind of yeah. Beatlesque pop, you know, um, and um, it got them a lot of attention and, and Mike went on to do all kinds of work in movies, he's done stuff for Getting to the Greek and um, films like that um, but this this is a lovely song and it's got a really sort of heartbreaking chorus um, where he, basically the, cor- the lyric to the chorus is we still have time and what he said to us when we interviewed him was that he was thinking, you know when Adam was sick that um, it was just a something that he sort of said to himself as a way of thinking, you know, I'm here, I'm still here, I still have time, I'm going to go in the studio and I'm going to finish this project, you know, and um, it it really resonated with me and uh, it's a lovely tune. So I think everyone should be a fan of Mike. I think he's a a terrific artist and uh, done loads of other stuff, uh, collaborating with people like Mandy Moore. He collaborates with the guys from Doors on um, Mandy Moore's record and uh, he's co-written with tons of people over the years. He's he's just a really talented guy. So that's the one that I'd select and recommend. Wonderful. Well, people can go and listen to that and and all of the other choices today, Sam, because we put a a Spotify playlist together to accompany uh, Ah. this podcast. Um, and so, as we find ourselves, um, we're recording this on the 29th of March, so as we find ourselves kind of uh, slowly finding our, our way back to an element of normality where we can reconnect and, and, and go and hug family and friends and stuff, what what are you looking forward to um, from uh, the rest of 21? And what can we expect from Soda Jerker and Simon in 2021? Hmm. That's a good question. People don't ask me questions like that. So um, it's nice to reflect for a moment and think about that. Uh, I guess I'm looking forward to seeing my family because I haven't really seen my mum that often since uh, all of this took place. She's up in Liverpool. So that'll be nice. Um, I'm looking forward to getting into the studio with Brian and actually, you know, face to face working on some music. Because we do write songs together and, you know, we've got a whole bunch of stuff that we've written sort of remotely. There's bits and pieces on, you know, files in Dropbox all over the place. But um, to take some of those and finish them in this new space that I've created would be fantastic. So that's probably the thing I'm looking forward to most. And then as the rest of the year goes on, we're just trying to get as many of these episodes out that we can. We've got sort of 15 episodes in the queue that we've recorded and not released yet. So that's obviously a lot of work. And um, we're just sort of trying to process our way through that queue and then build up to the anniversary because November will be the 10th anniversary of Soda Jerker, 10 years of doing the pod, which is uh, quite a commitment, really. We're quite proud of that, having stuck at it for a decade. Absolutely. Absolutely. And rightfully so. Um, Simon, it's been a real pleasure talking records with you. Um, been great. I, I can't thank you enough, and 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 thank you for Soda Jerker because uh, it was a big influence on me starting a music podcast as well. And yeah, and I think it's a, a glorious podcast. I think you do a, a smashing job, mate. Ah, oh, thank you. That's really kind.
And uh, yeah, and I look forward to speaking to your co-host very soon. Ah, great. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. There you go. Ah, we had a nice little chat afterwards as well. Managed to uh, talk about the Fountains of Wayne and and Howard Jones a little bit more and exchange a few little stories. Um, Yeah, what what a top 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 guy and uh yeah obviously go and check out my episode with brian as well uh, and as mentioned at the beginning go and explore the back catalogue of off the beaten track because uh yeah much the same as as, as soda jerker we've, we've both been blessed to to talk music um with some incredible artists and uh yeah so go and uh, go and get stuck in uh, and you can find out everything you need to know about off the beat and track at www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com stay safe lovely people um have a lovely week i'll be back very very soon uh in the meantime be excellent to each other and uh, and i'll see you soon bye-bye i've got an announcement save our souls clothing www.sosclothing.com uk. Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in South End on Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. In addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, They've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk do a bit of shopping see what you like throw it in the basket and then on the way out put in the discount code BEAT15 B-E-A-T-1-5 and that'll save you 15% off amazing right www.sosclothing.co.uk official sponsors of Off The Beat and Track Podcast It's off the beat and track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whipping. Eat it, boy.